Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Akane Tanaka about using parasites to improve your health. And later, a taste of my visit to the annual Consumer Electronics and Business Information Technology CBIT exhibition at Darling Harbour. Parasites to the rescue? Akane Tanaka is a postdoctoral research scientist working on parasite-inspired treatments for autoimmune disorders at the School of Life Sciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. I visited her and began by asking, aren't parasites bad for us? That's a very, very good question, and that is actually quite true. It is one of the sort of the biggest causes of disease still in endemic countries, such as in Africa. And so a lot of people still get sick and die from it every year. But the thing is that we've tried to utilise parasites as a sort of a novel therapeutic to treat autoimmune disorders. And this all sort of sort of started from this theory called the hygiene hypothesis, which states that the removal of environmental factors such as parasite infections have sort of educated our immune system or it's changed the balance of our immune system so that in countries such as Australia, where we've removed these parasite infections, we're more prone to developing autoimmune disorders and also allergies as well. So we need parasites in our environment to educate our immune systems to be less allergic? Yeah, you could say that. I guess sort of following on from the hygiene hypothesis, more recently there was a gentleman that developed a theory called the old friends hypothesis. So we think that worms are our friends and we should sort of bring them back into sort of make, again, educating our immune system to then not develop these sort of allergies or autoimmune disorders. But don't they also make us sick? <laughs> That's definitely true. So I guess, well... Let me start off by saying that there have been clinical trials in terms of trying to use parasite worms as a treatment option for, for example, um, inflammatory bowel disease, um, type 1 diabetes and multiple sclerosis. And although there have been some efficacy, mainly in mouse models, some in human trials, it hasn't been completely successful. So what we're trying to do, for example, at our laboratory is to isolate the specific proteins that these parasite worms secrete that are known to have immune modulatory properties that will then be able to manipulate our immune system the way we want it to rather than having on top of the the side effects that these worms can cause meant to be a safer option if that makes sense so these parasitic worms are not just getting in and taking advantage of our body to to feed and reproduce, Mm -hmm. but they're interacting with our immune system in a way that's different to the way that infections normally do. 
Yes, that's correct. So typically, for example, if you have a bacteria or a virus that infects your body, you will have sort of a pro-inflammatory response. So the inflammation is trying to get rid of the bacteria or the virus. But with a parasite worm, you actually have an anti-inflammatory response. And that's partly because the, of the parasite that's trying to invade us and trying to survive within the host. So then I guess that's where we've tried to come up with using that immune response in terms of treating autoimmune disorders and also allergies. So the parasites are basically hacking our immune system and you're trying to get the codes. Exactly, yeah, you could say that. That's a great analogy. And so when you've got the codes, we'd be able to take medication that mimics what the parasites are doing so that we're less allergic or less autoimmune, like with diabetes where they're attacking their own pancreas, and instead their immune system would just behave itself. Yes, that's right. So I guess, well, with our current mice models, so we've tested a couple of proteins that these parasites secrete in type 1 diabetes, um, multiple sclerosis, and also um, allergic asthma. What we've done is sort of give them prior to the development of the disease or sort of at the very beginning, and then we're we've been monitoring how the disease progression occurs and it seems like it lowers the incidence or the development of the disease very, very significantly. So it's more so of an educative system rather than as a treatment option once the disease develops. How do you detect early stage asthma to be able to head it off? Well, for example, for type 1 diabetes, it's a you have genetic predisposition. So obviously, from that in that sense, perhaps you could provide it as sort of a, even a vaccine for babies just before they develop the disease. But for asthma, I'm sure there are more, more, many more complications rather than just being a genetic thing. So, But yeah, if there was some sort of biomarker as to how we can see whether a person will develop allergic asthma, then we could definitely implement the parasite protein prior to then developing allergic asthma. There have been people looking into these parasites as a treatment for things as well. Has it been effective? Yes. So as I mentioned before, they have been looking into the human clinical trials, but a lot of the trials unfortunately have had to be stopped just because they haven't been proven quite efficable yet. I've heard of people with various autoimmune conditions and allergies in particular who like got impatient with waiting for the scientists to finish the research and went off to third world countries to deliberately catch these worms. Did you hear of any of these cases of Um, self, what, I don't know what you call them, self experimenters? Yes, that's, I'm not surprised to hear that. I would say that it is, these diseases are horrible. They are very debilitating. And I understand that people are very, very desperate. I've heard of a case where my supervisor has received emails from yeah, from the general public who have asked where our research has come so far and whether they were we were up to clinical trials and we could actually administer these parasite proteins to them. But unfortunately, my supervisor had to decline their response and sort of explain where we were at. But yeah, that, that's definitely something I'm sure that is happening around the world. There must be a constant pressure working in your field of just people who go give me the solution now i don't care you're not ready i don't care it's not safe i'm just i'm desperate that is does that make it really hard i think working in the lab there is some sort of detachment unfortunately to sort of the public cry almost and so i guess 
being within the lab and in academia, you're always a bit narrow-minded because you're thinking about experiments, your cells, etc. And you tend to forget about the bigger picture. But I guess when you have these sort of interviews and also give presentations at scientific communication events, that's when you sort of realise the pressure. And I guess I'm not too caught up by it. I think I try to put it more of a positive spin where I think that I'm, you know, I'm contributing to the society and I, and I, I guess I'm proud to be a part of the, the journey and the process of developing this novel therapeutic. If, yeah, and hopefully it'll be in the clinical trial stage very, very soon, but we'll see how that goes. Well, you're definitely part of the solution. <laughs> and what sort of organisms are you looking at? In terms of the parasites, so the there are a couple of parasites that have been used. Mainly it's the flatworms, so they're called the trematodes. The ones that we use at UTS are called commonly known as the sheep liver fluke. So they infect sheep and cattle mostly, but they are known to infect humans. And the more technical name is Fasciola hepatica. And what sort of ways do they communicate with our immune system? So they cause an anti-inflammatory response so that they can survive within a host of many, many years. It's been reported that they can survive up to even 20 years in a variety of hosts. So that would include the sheep, the cattle, the humans, even birds and kangaroos as well. Is it more than just an anti-inflammatory? I mean, it's huge that they can get an anti-inflammatory system and obviously that's it's what you're studying. But do they... Do anything with antibodies or the the rest of the body's defences? Yes, so once the parasite actually enters your body, it would obviously cause a pro-inflammatory response, similar to the bacteria and viruses. But then I guess what we like to think is that the parasite itself from secreting these proteins are then sort of dampening down that pro-inflammatory response. So they are being very invasive by sort of burrowing through the the human body, but it's the anti-inflammatory proteins that we think are causing that or enabling the parasites to survive within the host for many years. So once you've identified these useful proteins and you've determined their safety, would you be getting them to be synthesized biologically or how would you be making them? Yes, so that's a very good question. Our lab has been able to synthetically synthesize these proteins. So we know the actual amino acid sequence and we ship it off to a company and then they can create these um, proteins. So would you end up getting bioreactors to make them when it's time for them to be medicines? That's a very good question. I, I'd hope so in the in the future. At the moment, we are still just trying to test it within cells and mice models before we go into any sort of big scale production. So when you were trying to identify these proteins, how did you get them out of the parasites? So what you can do is basically isolate the parasites from an infected animal. So you'd get it from a cow or a sheep that's um, been affected with the, the liver fluke. And then you basically digest the liver, take out these worms, and then you culture them in Petri dishes with some nutrients. And then what happens is that these parasites would sort of voluntarily excrete and secrete these proteins. And then from sort of the liquid that they've um, expelled it into, we then isolate the, the proteins. So you fool the parasites into thinking they're still in the body. Exactly, that's right. Once you 
got these proteins, you were then able to identify them. Yes. And so what stage are you up to now? So we've actually identified a couple of the proteins, sort of the, the main proteins that are produced by the this, this specific worm of interest. And so we have actually identified a single protein as well that seems to be working very well in preventing um, development of type 1 di- diabetes, um, multiple sclerosis, and as well as allergic asthma. Do you know when people would take this once it was ready to go? That's a very, very good question. We haven't thought that far yet, but as I mentioned, it could p- potentially be sort of a more like a vaccine where people would take it prior to the development of a disease. So is that the next lot of research for you, or would you be handing this to a different type of scientist who would do that type of research? So at this current moment, we're still trying to characterise in terms of how the protein is working in preventing the disease development, as I mentioned before. So I'm still doing a lot of cellular work. So I'm mainly looking into specific immune cells. So my PhD, for example, was working into figuring out how that specific parasite protein was affecting macrophages. So macrophages are very, very important white blood cells, immune cells that can um, influence our immune system. And so I'm trying to figure out how then those macrophages will then lead on to the prevention of those diseases. It's such a long process, isn't it, to get it all right? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) It's taken, I would say this, my project, sort of led on from previous PhD students and they've been obviously working on it for three, four years. And so, yes, it's already been, let's say, six eight, six to eight years that it's taken just to do the characterization. But there's a lot, lot more that we're still looking into. So I, I'm not entirely sure how long, how much longer it would take. But yeah, science does take a very long time. And will you be on this project for several years? Hopefully. So I'm currently hired, as I said, as a postdoctoral research scientist. Depending on my how my contract goes, I'd hopefully be able to work for many years to come under my supervisor, or if I could then generate my own laboratory group with my own students. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Are there other types of parasite interactions that interest you? My supervisor started off with this project before because of her own PhD project where she was looking into how, I think it was a fascia hepatica worm, how that worm infects cattle and sheep and how it was detrimental to them. But then I guess the with this novel idea of using it as a therapeutic treatment, yeah, that's sort of where she went on to. So I guess in terms of parasitic interactions, the other aspect is to look at how they cause disease and how we can prevent that. But at the moment, I'm really interested in taking the spin of using it as a novel treatment option. This is a really exciting area that I think people should be watching out. So if people wanted to get into your area what do they have to study to get up to your phd level to be able to look at how parasites could be therapeutic i see so i started off as an undergraduate at uts i'm doing a major in biomedical science and as part of my undergraduate degree i had studied immunology as part of my course there are also subjects such as parasitology that's available although i didn't do the subject i did go on to do an honors with my current supervisor and that's how i got introduced to this field 
Well, Akane, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. It's lovely to talk. That was Akane Tanaka talking about parasite-inspired treatment of autoimmune disorders at the School of Life Sciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. From the laboratories of your name here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was your product here. A brighter future unfolded. Thanks to your name here. Employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere, geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions. I've been going to CBIT for a large number of years. Back in the day, they used to show a whole bunch of exciting new consumer electronics, and often sold them at a huge discount. There are no more displays of consumer electronics. It's all business stands, selling very standard, very established, very bland business-to-business services. There's nothing to discount because nothing is sold. The one exception this year was Segway, with their latest model ride-on transport. One-wheel Segways if you have the skill, two-wheel Segways if you don't, and an electric Razor scooters. Unfortunately, you're only allowed to ride them in public in Canberra and Brisbane. Everywhere else in Australia, they're illegal to ride unless you're on private property. Vendors used to give away swag, bags of cool promotional gear. Now the most you can get is a woven plastic bag advertising the government's national broadband network. The most exciting exhibitors at CBIT are the universities, showing off new technology. This year, three universities showed up. The University of New South Wales had their latest solar-powered electric racing car, which takes passengers in the back seats as well as the front. It's a passenger car that they're getting certified for public roads. I want one. Unfortunately, they didn't have anyone authorised to speak to me on the day. The most exciting exhibitors at CBIT are the universities, showing off new technology. My CBIT interviews were recorded in the crowded and noisy Darling Harbour International Convention Centre. I moved up to the University of Technology Sydney exhibit and ran into Quan Wu, who I shared an office with at UTS back in 2000. Quan Wu is now an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology. He was showing two projects based on computer vision and machine learning. I began by asking him, the TechFit app can determine your correct size for buying clothes online. How does that work? This is a very interesting project. I think the motivation is pretty straight. Uh, when someone gets to buy something from online, unfortunately, when he received the 
close property too small or too big, and the trouble will be say has to return and uh, seller also need to repost. It's very difficult. And uh, so in the meantime, for fashion industry, they got a similar issue. Currently, we only have a small size, medium size, larger size, but different people still have a specific size. So it's always a constraint to no matter uh, buyer or to the seller. So uh, this idea is going to motivate uh, this uh, collaboration between UTS and this tech fit company. They uh, raised this request, say, uh, can I use a simple mobile phone camera, just take a few pictures, and then we can build this so-called 3D model, and in the meantime, to match the body size. I think that's a contest behind the project. And fortunately, and it sounds like pretty successful. So far, we have already done this preliminary work, and the preliminary results sounds like pretty convincing. So you just need someone to hold the phone for you or to put it on a tripod and then you stand in front of it with your arms out, face on and to the side and it works out your size. Yeah, current operation uh, would be say, uh, the people we are asked uh, say to put a camera somewhere and then he or she stand in front of the camera roughly two meters according to the voice instruction provided from the mobile phone and say you um, uh, turn the 90 degree and uh, for face, for side view, for back view and overall take around four different angles and uh, inside the computer say you are going to mix these uh, four angle photo together to build these uh, people's 3D model and then next step going to do the mesh and the size for sure and the people will be asked to enter your height, your weight into an assistant, so based on such a reference information, so the software can tell you and then a different size along your body. And will this give you a standard size or will this information go to the people selling you the clothes? The size is not simple, just medium, small, it will give you precise size. And the information for sure will be told to the user. But in the meantime, depends on what application in the future, the information can be shared to the fashion factory, manufacturer, so they can personalize the clothes for the different customer. That's the idea behind. And when do you think it might be available? Well, I, from the technology point of view, I think it is still under development and the preliminary results are very convincing. I would say uh, take another say one year, it can be seen somewhere, but certainly uh, we need to see how market would be interested in this uh, technology and how industry can promote this technology in some right way. And the second project you're working on here is counting animals with drones and computer vision. Yeah, it's true. I think this uh, technology well, say, is not something new. We didn't do uh, animal counting. Uh, we always did a lot of people counting. People counting is purely for safety, for security, and uh, for event planning. Uh, in Australia, it is, uh, uh, we, our country get a special industry. Farmers get uh, such an open area, and uh, they have uh, such animal, cattle, uh, almost everywhere. Uh, so particularly for livestock industry, they export such a live animal, they also need to count 
yes. to do an accounting. So I think the motivation just uh, like that. So we uh, move our technology from people subject to animal subject. And uh, we need to change uh, such a feature extraction and for sure some special model training has to be updated and changed in some way. So that's uh, the context behind, yes. Well, Kuang Wu, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Kuang Wu, working on computer vision in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney, at the CBIT exhibition in Darling Harbour in Sydney. More CBIT interviews next week. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. Thank you to Boring Girl, Stormy and Yevgeny. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting, 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.